the blade dot something dot ac dot jp that's an interesting url you should run that what the blade thing (coughs) oh blade running yeah okay good uh struggling over there tom it's uh it's okay Welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Steph. And I'm Chris. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot, hoping to share a few of our ventures with you each week. So what's new with you, Chris? What's new with me is I now have a semi-permanent. I don't know. We'll see when Greg wants it back. But I get to use a keyboard for a while because you finally got one of yours. So what what is your overall keyboard status at this point? I have one of the two that I've ordered. Okay. The one that arrived first is the Leopold 660. It's the one that has the Topper silent keys, and I'm pretty much in love with it. Yeah? It's awesome. Yeah. It's got a very different sound. I haven't actually used that style of key yet, but it hearing it adjacently, I'm like, I don't know. That doesn't sound right to me. But I think I've just become very adapted to the to the one style. But it's interesting. This was what we expected would happen, is the fancy one would ruin you for the other one. Oh, well. This I, is the fancy one, right? This is. This is the fancy one. So I get the less fancy one, the Keychron K2. That's arrived today. It's at my apartment. So I just haven't put my hands on it yet. But I don't think it's going to ruin it. I think I'm going to like the variety between the two. And the Topper silent keys are a big deal. Just so if I'm sitting next to someone that is more noise sensitive, I have an option. So specifically for home is what I'm thinking I'll use that one for. Because if I'm at the office with other developers, I feel like, eh, they understand. They won't mind as much. There's just a general din of clacking in the background anyway. So you're just part of the fray. But yeah, I can see that for home. Yeah, if I'm sitting next to a non-developer. I'm also learning about the dip switch that's on the back of the keyboard, and that is a nice feature. It stands for dual inline package switch, and it's there so you can change certain configurations without having to access some particular software with the keyboard. So I could change it so my caps lock and my control switched so I don't have to map my keyboard each time. And I could also change it so that the operating system switch and the alt key switch places because I was used to one being next to the space bar, so I switched those. And you're doing that at the hardware level of the keyboard now as opposed to each time you connect to a different computer. Exactly. That's fancy. Yeah, it's on the back. They're like these teeny tiny little switches that you have to turn on. And I had to find a little instructional kit online to let me know what I was doing because I can't read it and understand. But I found a nice diagram that told me what each switch does. So I changed two of them. I don't know what the other two yet. I've only learned 50% of them (laughs) so far. So I have two more to learn. This is fantastic. I really enjoy how each week we have a new addition to the story, to the grand history of Steph and her adventures in keyboards. (laughs) Well, cool. I hope you will keep us updated and let us know as the next one arrives and how you'll compare and contrast them. And yeah, you're becoming the most knowledgeable person I know about uh, mechanical keyboards very quickly. (laughs) It is funny how it took off where, yeah, I mean, people warned me that it's something that once you get into, you'll love it. And it's totally it didn't true. Off. You took off. I took off. <laughs> you really just got after it. Uh, but that's good. That's a, it's a very developer mindset of just like dialing into a thing. Yeah, so that's where I'm at with keyboards. So now you have full custody mm. of that keyboard. You haven't typed on the new one yet. You should borrow it sometime and use it. On the one that you just got? Mm-hmm. No, I have not. Mm-hmm. I'm a little scared because if I really like it, it's a much more expensive keyboard. And I'm already being very hesitant in buying any of them. But uh, I will have to try it at some point because it's there and why not? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's pretty much what's going on with me and all of my acquired keyboards. What's going on in your world? I have an idea. 
Ooh, okay. It might be a bad idea. I'm in that early phase with the idea where I'm like, uh, this is either terrible or great or maybe just boring. That's a definite possibility. But to give a bit of a backdrop, I'm very interested in your opinion of the idea. So I'm going to build up some context and then you're going to tell me what you think, whether it's a terrible idea or a good idea. I'm Uh, ready. So on the current client application that we are working on, it has uh, some pretty complicated data models. And so one of the things that they've introduced are database views. So within Postgres, you can define a bunch of SQL, a query, and basically store that in the database and then interact with that view like it is a table. So that's by default views. And then there's a layer on top of that, which are materialized views. So instead of running that view every time we try and interact with that interface, we can go one step further and use materialized views, which allow us to cache the output of that query in essentially a temporary table. And then we're querying just against that temporary table, but we get the nice performance benefit that the results are already cached. Uh, So if there are complicated joins or a lot of data or et cetera, et cetera, we now have that stored off. And maybe there's some background process that is updating that materialized view once every 10 minutes, hour, whatever makes sense. But the application logic just gets to interact with this simplified data model and ideally more performant version when we do the full materialized view. As an aside, we're using Scenic, which is a wonderful library by Derek Pryor and Caleb Thompson, both former ThoughtBotters, some former hosts of this show. And it makes it just easier to manage all of that fun stuff. So that's a bunch of context. Mm -hmm. The pain point that we've been feeling is in this app, we have these materialized views. We actually have in one place, I think there's a sequence of them. So one materialized view builds on top of another. So if you're working with the system anywhere that interacts with those materialized views and you're trying to write a test, you now have to do a full round of setup, set up all the data, then refresh the materialized views in the correct order. Then you can interact with the system. And everyone on the team at some point has had a test that was silently failing for reasons they didn't understand. They thought they had the right setup data. They didn't. And it was basically they hadn't refreshed the views in the right order. It's just this sort of annoying extra detail that I don't want to deal with. So my idea with all that preamble, what if we didn't have to deal with it? What if in test mode we were able to, and I'm not sure of the particular mechanism here, but what if we could just disable materialized views and have the view run on demand all the time? somehow in test mode configure this. Again, I've thought zero about the how. I'm just interested in the what if. Ooh, uh, so let me dive into that. First of all, yes, I want to not worry about it. <laughs> so, I would like to not think about extra things. Yeah, okay. That would be cool. great. Sold you early. <laughs> Already sold. Just have to figure out how to get it done. Because I've also been that same person where I've had the test silently failing and someone informed me that I needed to refresh that view. So that way I'd have the data expected. So you're talking about if we don't use a materialized view, but there's no caching, but we still execute that query each time in the test? Right. The view still exists. The materialized aspect is the bit that I don't want to have to think about. So I want, instead of trying to go to this temporary table, which is where the materialized view caches its results, we somehow bypass that and run the view, which is the stored procedure in the database, or the stored query in the database, directly each time. Ideally, in test mode, we don't have that much data. The performance impacts, well, actually, we don't really care about the performance in tests at all. So this is just a caching overhead that we have to think about. The thing that got me thinking about this is we use background jobs often in our tests, but both active job and sidekick have a mechanism within tests for saying, 
use inline or serial mode. So basically process the job immediately in a blocking way so that we don't have to deal with the async nature of the jobs. Uh, and that's a nice feature. I rely on that in tests because otherwise you have to go do a bunch of things and then say, sidekick, run off these jobs and now do some other stuff. Sidekick, go run off these jobs. Instead say, have the system just work and treat that async nature as an implementation detail. So yeah, just as a refresher for me, because materialized views are always one of those, I encounter them in the wild not that frequently, so I always have to come reacquainted with them. And the oddity is that we are trying to access data in a table, and that table hasn't been constructed yet. And the code that we're running doesn't actually call any of the code that then constructs that table or that materialized view. I think the only way that I would say that slightly differently is instead of constructs, it's populates. Okay. So the table is there, and we're able to query it, but it's just empty. Even though the actual data, the core source data, is in the database, we've set up all of the models correctly, it's essentially a layer of caching. We haven't primed the cache, and we need to manually prime the cache. What I want is essentially fall-through behavior on that cache. If the cache is empty, go look in the other place. But that's not how materialized views work. So if we moved this to a job, would this job essentially, is your idea to have that run before each test, before a specific test? Like you could tag a test to run this, but then that still falls into the having to know to do that? I don't think running before would work because you need the data to be in place and then refresh the materialized view at that point because the whole point is it's caching the output of a query and the data needs to be in place first. So the closest thing I'm thinking is with Sidekick, I'm not trying to move this into a job per se, but the parallel to the way sidekick or background jobs work in tests is the thing that caught my eye. In test mode, we just tell our background job system to run immediately in a blocking fashion. Not always, but there's both systems have that configuration and we use it from time to time. Or actually even better is uh, Rails caching. In test mode, the cache is the null store, which is basically don't cache and always fall through to the thing that populates the cache, which in our case would be the view. So I want that, but I don't know how to do it. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking through right now is I like that idea. I like that just being able to call it, it's not going to see a table that hasn't been populated, but instead it will run the necessary code that's going to populate that table and we don't have to worry about it. But I also don't know how to do that. My dream in this moment is that I'm able to nerd snipe Derek Pryor and get him to actually build this for me as part of Scenic, and then I just get to use it. Uh, Assuming it's possible, it may just be like fundamentally impossible, or Postgres doesn't support the sort of things that we would need. I have no idea. I haven't dug into this, but it's one of those things where I'm like, I don't want to care. And we have all of these other examples of places where we don't have to care, so... I want that, but for this. Yeah. So as you were mentioning with the jobs, we can set those so they run in line. And with the materialized view, if there's a way in test to check when the table was last populated, but that's currently not how the materialized views work. And they don't check when they're last populated. Instead, we have to manually set up a job to populate those tables. Yeah, this is a tricky one Mm. because there's no code in place that's really checking any of that. We are just explicitly saying, hey, go populate this data for us. It's interesting, though, there's the parallel, I think, to the Rails caching is the one that's most applicable, and that's just how the caches work otherwise. But a materialized view is this different sort of cache, and I'm not sure why now that I think about it. I guess the whole goal is we're explicitly saying we don't want to run this code on demand. We only want to run it manually when we do it. I think that's what I want, though. I think I want it to have some sort of caching where instead I can set a configuration level that says, hey, if you haven't repopulated this table in the last 10 minutes, run it again or something like that instead of having to explicitly set a job. 
Am I making stuff up? That's not how it currently works, right? No, no. You explicitly refresh the materialized view. But I think that's what I want. Is I want there to be a caching mechanism that will do it for me. Mm. I wonder if that would even work in tests. So if we're running a bunch of tests back to back to back, then one second ago, it will have refreshed this materialized view. That's happening in a transaction, so maybe it wouldn't count. But I... I actually just don't think that mechanism exists. But then that would create, yeah, I'm, I know I'm totally creating features here. <laughs> but then that would work for the test mode of where, similar to running jobs, you can run them in line. You could disable that mm-hmm. configuration setting to say, don't ever cache it, just always run it. But right now, since we can't even talk to the materialized view in that way, I don't know how to bridge your dream idea mm-hmm. to making it a reality, other than the fact that materialized views need a a different way to manage themselves to yep. know when to run. It's easy. I just uh, I think I need to write a patch for Postgres. I totally know how to work in that code base. Not at all. Nope. <laughs> nope. But maybe, maybe there is a way and we'll see. But I, yeah, I was mostly interested in like, is there something obvious that I'm missing or some reason that this would cause our system to behave in a sufficiently different way in test that our tests are now lying to us? I don't think so, but I, I, that's the level that I'm at. I'm trying very hard to not do the thing that I always do, which is, I have an idea. Let me go implement it immediately. Let me go play around in the solution space and instead think about it from first principles of, is this even a reasonable thing to try and do, or would it have externalities and, and side effects that I don't want? I think it's fine, but that's the question that I'm trying to spend the time with right now. As someone who's felt that pain, I think it's reasonable. Like even having worked with the materialized views and knowing it's a thing in a particular code base, I would still write tests and I would forget to refresh that view. And it would take a couple test failures and me digging around to remember, oh, yeah, I need to refresh that view so I have that data available. So, yeah, I, I think it's reasonable. All right. We have one vote of reasonable. We shall continue Reasonable forward. and awesome if we can just figure out how to make it work. All right. I will report <laughs> back if anything changes. But uh, that's where I'm at right now. Uh, what else is going on in your world? Oh, I saw in Rubyland that the pipeline operator that we talked about a while back has been reverted. Reverted? Yeah. I hate to celebrate. Uh, well, actually, I mean, we're fans of code not going in, so I guess I'm fine with it. But I think this is a good thing. At least the community seems in support of that idea. So I think so, too, in the sense that there were enough people that felt like the pipeline operator was introducing more confusion than helpfulness. So for anyone that isn't familiar with the pipeline operator, it's very similar to chaining method calls. It's not what a number of people would expect in a uh, pipeline operator in Elm or Elixir, where it's going to take the result of a function call and then pass that to the next function. Instead, it is essentially chaining method calls together. So when that came out as a potential introduction to, I would think, Ruby 6, uh, there was a lot of uproar, I would say, as to some folks who were not on board and found it very confusing. So I think it's neat to see that feedback, although I do always encourage kind feedback. There's some people that get a little too angsty about stuff. But it looks like Matt's did a great job of taking all that feedback and considering it and even wrote a little nice message saying how they saw the drawbacks and decided to go ahead and revert that operator. So yeah, no pipeline operator in Ruby, at least not yet. At least not that way either. And not that way. I would be fine with getting one. In fact, I write weird Ruby that kind of looks like it's functional programming sometimes, but it involves dot then and ampersand method and other things that I probably shouldn't be doing. Strong word. (laughs) I do appreciate the purposeful approach here. And in general, Ruby depending on your measure, seems to move a little bit more slowly than some other languages, particularly JavaScript is one that moves at such a speedy clip. But it's really interesting the differences between them where Ruby basically has the one implementation. And in JavaScript, there's Babel, which is introducing this syntactic transformation. And 
So everyone is kind of existing ahead of the standards in JavaScript, whereas with Ruby, we're basically beholden to the core team. And so it's really interesting to see the way the different communities think about and work through the RFC process and deciding what to implement and what not to. And so yeah, I just think that comparison between them is interesting. And it's, it is nice to see since we're also essentially beholden to what the core team comes out with, it's great to see that they're taking feedback from the community and bring that into the process. Well, and hopefully it's a good jumping off point for future folks as well. When they see something coming in Ruby that they're just like, nope, I don't think that's a good addition. Then they can look back on this as a data point to say, we are being heard, like they are listening to us. And those working on the language should have that creative space to get to propose new ideas without it causing chaos. So I I like how this was resolved in the sense that it was introduced. They had the opportunity to play with it. The community said, I don't think that's great. So it's been reverted and we can keep going forward and experimenting and then giving feedback. Switching gears just a little bit, we had a pretty interesting debugging experience this week. Do you want to dive into that? Uh, We did, yes. Before digging into the specifics of it, one of the things that stood out about it was the process of Uh, I was working on some code. It was not going super great. Uh, I just kept hitting some issues, couldn't figure it out. And I commented in Slack and said, hey, is anyone available? So talking within, we have a room inside of our Slack where it's just you, myself, and Greg. So I was asking if either of you were available to pair. Pretty quickly, you said, yeah, absolutely, let's pair. And I love that availability of, we're not pairing now for the rest of the afternoon. That's not the thing that is true. It was just like, hey, can I get a couple minutes of an extra set of eyes here? And so I really appreciated your jumping in and helping me with what ended up being a complicated, annoying sequence of things. Let me see, what's the simplest way to describe it? Uh, Forms are hard. That's the start. Mm -hmm, Uh, Forms, mm -hmm. unsurprisingly, are part of the issues. We had a form object that had been introduced. It had active model model in there. Uh, and some other things, some validations, basically the ability to fill out a page, so render the current state of the world into the form and then accept the post input, the params as they're submitted, deal with all of that, and ideally not muck up our actual database models, which unfortunately in this situation, the data model for the concern that this page represents is spread across a bunch of different models. If I can expand a little bit on that, when you said not muck up our data objects, because I like what you just said, Mm. but for anyone less familiar with the form objects, it's just separating those concerns where our models get to stay consistent representation of the data that's in the database, but then the form object represents the actual validations and the checks that we want to run for the user for all the inputs. Mm -hmm. That's all. I just thought that was an interesting wording, So, but I like it. Yes. Excellent clarification. Thank you for highlighting that. So we have... A wrapped user model, which is a complicated thing, we have this form model, which is wrapping around that wrapped user model. It's mapping out to multiple database tables, and then there's a form, which are just hard. And unfortunately, the page would render correctly. There was a select box that would have some number of options selected in it, so that was rendering correctly. But when we were submitting to the server, it wasn't saving. So that was very confusing. Some piece of this wasn't working. And the thing that was inter- the actual solution, I was just missing one additional place that I needed to reference it. It failed silently, which is always interesting. It was just sort of dropping the data. But that's the mode that I was in when I grabbed you to help out on this is I was like, I have no idea. It's just not doing the thing. And what was interesting was the sequence of steps that we took through. So do you want to describe at all some of the tools that you brought to bear on the situation? Because you came in very ready to solve this problem, and I appreciated that. Sure. So one of the fun things of rolling over like to pair with you is that you had a lot of context for this form and a lot's happening in this form. So initially, 
I don't have a lot of understanding of necessarily what's happening, but as you started breaking it down to specifically this thing wasn't being saved or persisted the way you expected. So we reviewed to see if it was actually getting saved to the database. And I think that's when you confirmed that it is not getting saved. And that's why it's potentially clearing out the field when we expected the value to be there. And then did we start with raising first? I think we might have gone binding.pry or a put. I think it was a puts to start. That Uh, wasn't working. But we were like, maybe we're not seeing the puts. So we escalated to a raise. I like that escalation process. We start nicely with just the puts, just something in the console, a little string. Just a gentle little bit of extra information. (laughs) And then we didn't see the puts. So we're like, okay, like you said, we're missing it. So I think you're right that we went to pry next. So it would pause when it got there. And then we still didn't see the pry. And we're like, okay, that's weird. So then we escalated to a raise, which looking back, like if we didn't see the pry, there's no reason we probably would have seen the raise, but it just felt like in the moment, a need to confirm that this is indeed not hitting this method, even though it really should be hitting this method. So then we raised, but nothing happened. And from there, we moved outside of the form object to see where it was being called in the controller, confirmed that this method was indeed being called, put a binding pry in the method that was calling our expected method. And when we hit that pry and we called it, then we hit our raise. And I think that's what led to the aha moment that when we called it directly, somehow we hit that method, but beforehand we were missing it. Yep. And I think uh, at that point, we had realized some form of caching was the problem, uh, specifically development mode Rails caching, at which point you yelled the word spring. But it wasn't spring's fault this time. Spring is not on the project. (laughs) This is true. Yeah. If there's ever a moment where I feel like the world doesn't make sense, Mm -hmm. my first reaction is spring. Yep. (laughs) Sorry, spring. Uh, I blame you a lot. I love Spring. I'm a defender of Spring. It would have been perfectly reasonable for Spring to be the case. I think in this case, we just recently moved to Rails 6, and my guess is there is some auto-loading, development mode caching bug that was introduced, and so it was not updating our reference to some class when we were changing it. So Rails, the server was just continually running old code, and we saw that even when we did introduce the raise, but then we deleted it, and the page still raised an exception, but when it printed out the code and tried to show the line, the raise was gone because we had deleted it, and it was like one step out of sync. That's right. I forgot about that part. All of that was amazing. There was one other tool that uh, you brought in, which I really liked, which when we were trying to figure out if the method was being called, we called it. It did end up raising, but then we used the method source location. So method as a keyword, I want to say, or I guess it's a method, but you say method and then parentheses, the symbol for the method name that you're trying to go. And now you get back a method object. And then on that, you can call dot source location. And so that was your recommendation is to check like which version of this method, because there were with the form object and other layers, possibly many different versions of the method that we were hitting. Well, I love that for especially code bases that tend to have a lot of abstractions that have been introduced, because I get nervous that I think I'm hitting this method, but I'm actually working with an object that already has that method defined. So I'm hitting a method of the same name, but it's been over in somewhere else. So yeah, that's that's one of my favorites to just make sure that I'm actually hitting the method or that method is defined where I think it is. In this case, it did point to the correct location, which, again, gave us a little more validation that our heads were at least on somewhat straight. I was fully expecting it to return like auto-generated code or something like that, or the thing where it says, I don't know, Rails made this up, and I have no idea where it came from, which is sometimes the answer from method source location. But yeah, all total, this was just a perfect storm of Rails magic and indirection. Forms are hard. Caching is equally hard. But then I think a really interesting sequence of debugging, both in terms of 
the thought process and then the specific tools. And also, thank you, because I would have been stuck on that for a lot longer had you not rolled over. So Well, and I love that pattern of thinking, too. When you realize the world feels weird and unmanageable, where it is defying all the logic that you have as to what should be happening, grab a friend. Mm -hmm. Because then at least you have someone there that's seeing the same thing that you are, and they bring their own debugging strategies to the table. So yeah, it was fun. Yep. Coming back to normally scheduled things, I think we have a listener question. We do. And this question comes from Aaron Kelton, who reached out to us via Twitter. So Aaron reached out to us and said, Placing remote work aside, our livelihood depends on local companies using Ruby. How can we as Rubyists in our community encourage more companies to migrate legacy apps and create new apps using Ruby and Rails? So I think we responded a bit on Twitter. But before we dive into those, Chris, do you want to kick us off? I think it's an interesting question. There's, I would say, an unstated assumption in there, which is that we are Rubyists. That is what we are, and that's a fixed concept. So if that's true, then yes, I agree. We need to get more companies using Ruby and Rails so that we can continue to be working in that. I think you and I probably have a slightly skewed view as consultants. We're sort of moving between technologies inherently, but it's also, for me, my preferred way to be. I consider myself a web developer. We talked about this a couple of episodes back, I think. It's important to me to not identify specifically with the technology, but the technological approach of web development makes sense to me. And so... That's my first reaction. I think there's some interesting things to say about, well, let's assume we do want to encourage Ruby and Rails. How do we do that? But that's my initial take. What do you think? I strongly agree in the sense that I do identify as a Rubyist, but I consider my career not just Ruby. It happens to be something that I love and that I reach for. But I wouldn't consider that if Ruby and Rails were to be discontinued, go out of style, I would still very much be an active web developer. I would just have to shift and find a a new framework, a new language to love and embrace. DHH just turns off all the lights. (laughs) Gotta go home. Just time to go home. Time to close up shop. Please don't do that. I really love (laughs) Ruby and Rails. (laughs) But going back to your point, the idea that because we love it, so we really enjoy working in it, if we want to encourage more companies to use it, I would be intrigued and the reasons that they're seeing that companies aren't using Ruby and Rails. It sounds like they mentioned specifically migrating legacy apps. And I think I have more understanding as to why companies wouldn't want to migrate their apps to the Ruby on Rails because they're more focused on the tech stack that they have. And migrating to a new framework is a big cost. And that may not be something that works for their business and also may not work for their dev team. But if they're looking to introduce a new application or if it's someone that's getting started and building a new application, I'd be curious as to why they're not choosing Ruby on Rails and having more conversations with them. Because as someone who loves Ruby on Rails, I can be an advocate to say, this is why I think it's great. I think you can build features very quickly. You can get your product to market and you'll can get user feedback right away. So there's a bunch of wins there and then find out what concerns they have. I think I need a little more information as to why we think companies aren't choosing Ruby on Rails and what they're going with instead. Yep. I think that's a a great point. Continuing on with that, some of the stuff that you actually replied on Twitter with, there are, I think, two sides to this where we can be an advocate on the developer side. And so in our local community, is there a Ruby meetup nearby? Can you be supporting other devs? Uh, RailsBridge, I think, is a great example of a program that helps get people into programming specifically via Ruby and Rails. And so are there ways for you to help other developers be you know, happily working in Ruby and Rails? Therefore, there is a group of people nearby that can be hired because that's definitely a consideration when I talk to organizations about which technology they're going to choose. There's often hesitance to move to a very new, hot, fresh thing that doesn't have 
a hireable pool of candidates out there. They need to make sure that they can staff their team moving forward with the technology. So that, I think, is one way that we can look at it from who's available to do this work, making sure that you're supporting that local community. On the flip side, though, as you were talking about, for companies, you have to sell them on this technology. Why, why this one over others? And unfortunately, I don't think the answer can be because we like it. It has to be because this will serve a business need. I think historically, the answer for Rails has been this will get us to market faster. This will allow us to iterate and be more productive than other things that were around when Rails was introduced. I think it still maintains that edge. That's the thing that I believe. But that's, for me, one of the strongest selling points. And so that, I believe, is the way to talk to organizations about why it's a technology choice worth pursuing. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think we kind of circled back to two areas is one fostering that community so that there are developers. I love what you said a moment ago of like, are there people available to do the work? And I think that is a huge decision for anyone that's choosing what language and framework that they're using. And then two is having those conversations with companies that are choosing to not use Ruby and Rails and then find out maybe they have very specific reasons that it's not a good fit for them, or they just need someone that's an advocate for the framework to give them examples as to why it would be an ideal choice for them. But overall, I think we are in a world where there are lots of options. So I'm happy to say that I don't think our livelihood depends on it. Yes. But just our love of Ruby does depend on others also sharing in that joy. Thank you, Aaron, for sending us that question. I think we have time for uh, one more listener question. We had someone write in asking for a bit of clarification for something that we said on a previous episode. This question comes from Daniel Lockhart, and it's related to GraphQL. So on your most recent podcast, you discussed various concerns with GraphQL. You brought up the concern of opening up the API to the world and then stated you have never made a public-facing GraphQL API. I was very confused by that. Given what you have said before, are you saying all of your GraphQL usage has been for internal sites, only available to employees? Or were you saying that the only clients of the GraphQL library are clients you or your team have written yourself? Could you expand on that a bit? I sure can. Yeah, our hope here with this question is, in case anyone else out there was confused by that, want to clarify that. So it's largely that last thing that Daniel asked. The GraphQL APIs that I've worked on have all been to serve the products that we're building. So they're very much used and consumed from end user facing applications. So they're not internal only in terms of like just being for admins or anything like that. They are driving the mobile apps and the web apps that users of the products are hitting. The distinction I was trying to make and didn't do a great job of, but GitHub, for instance, has a public API. Previously, they had their REST API, v3, and then v4, they moved to a GraphQL API. So if I, as a user of GitHub, random person out there in the world with a GitHub account, want to interact with data on GitHub's platform, I can do that through their GraphQL API. And I was trying to capture my vague concerns, or at least my lack of confidence personally, in doing that because GraphQL does open up for a much greater variety of queries. I don't think it's inherently insecure or unperformant, but it's a wider surface area than a REST API. REST API, you hit an endpoint, you get the data back. It's relatively transactional and straightforward. GraphQL really opens things up. And so I'm incredibly impressed with the work that GitHub has done and other organizations, but that is something that I would be a little more careful about personally, just because I haven't done it and because it really is just out of an abundance of caution because I'm like, well, that looks big. So I would want to spend a bunch of time validating and working through all of my concerns. That's what I meant by that. Yeah, I appreciate the honesty that you bring with all the GraphQL work that you've done, that you are very open about, I've done it this way, but I haven't experienced this particular path. And so I would just potentially have some more concerns and that you're sharing that with everyone else. So 
Perfect. Thanks for adding some clarification. My pleasure. And thank you, Daniel, for uh, following up with us. And as always, we love getting questions. So please feel free to send in more questions to host at bikeshed.fm. On that note, should we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show, and they let us know that folks are listening and enjoying the show, which helps us feel great about continuing to invest the time it takes to put these out. To make it as easy as possible, we've included a link in the show notes that will take you straight to the Bike Shed listing in iTunes on your computer or phone. And from there, you can add a rating or review in less than a minute. This episode was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bike Shed or reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter. Or me at S. Vicari. Or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye! Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.